How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give y'all an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word this evening, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this time that we have together this evening to fellowship around the study of your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to Israel, that despite our failures, you never shirk on your promises, break your promises, you do not lie, you do not change your mind, but you are always faithful. And Father, as we continue our study in looking at the significant role that Israel plays within your plan and within Scripture, we pray that that will not just be simply a historical study, but one that helps us to uh, truly understand, interpret, and uh, see the Word of God, understand our role as church-age believers in relation to Israel and the role of Israel in relation to your plan. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in light of the trip I was on a couple of weeks ago to Israel, I'm going to continue to show some videos. The sound quality on this one is a little shaky in the first maybe 15, 20, 30 seconds because there was some machinery running in the background and then that got shut off. And so that will pick up. The other thing that may be a little difficult for some of you is that the lady we're listening to is Ethiopian, an Ethiopian Jew, one of the so-called uh, 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 falasha, which actually is a term, of, uh, uh, a derogatory term, meaning a foreigner or someone who has been in exile. And I chose this particular uh, one to show because it is an extremely moving uh, story about her life and about, uh, and she represents, and I heard about five or six stories very, very similar to hers from the uh, Ethiop- different Ethiopian Jews. We not only, this lady is a director at a, at a at kibbutz known as Yemen Ord, named for Ord Wingate. Ord Wingate, if you don't remember, was a British officer who was uh, a little bit eccentric, Churchill and many others thought he was just flat crazy. He uh, was is really one of the fathers or grandfathers of the whole concept of special warfare, special operations, asymmetrical warfare, that kind of a thing. He was uh, a little bit strange in that he would do things to test himself to see what a human being could endure. And instead of walking across the Sahara Desert at night, he walked across it during the heat of the of the uh, noonday sun with no water to see how long he could last to test his own endurance and therefore to be able to understand what his men could actually endure under the worst possible conditions. He was dispatched by the British in, during the time of what's called the Arab Insurrection or Arab Revolt, uh, in the period from about 1935 to 1938 in uh, what was then the British Mandate uh, of, of Palestine. And he was extru- and what the British didn't understand is how much of a Zionist he was because he was reared in a, in a uh, Plymouth Brethren home where he and his sister were taught the Old Testament, taught the Bible from the time they were infants. And it, the, the value of the Jewish people and of uh, Israel to, um, to God's plan was drilled into them. So he had a tremendous love for the Jewish people. Unfortunately, both he and his sister apostatized from the faith as they went into their adult years. His sister became a full-blown atheist, and he became something of, a, of an agnostic. In fact, he, uh, um, he loved the Jewish people, he loved the Old Testament God, but he had questions about the Trinity and some other aspects that he never quite resolved. After, after his time in Israel, where he trained Moshe Dayan and many other uh, young men who later became the backbone of the of the IDF, the Israeli Army. Uh, the the British pulled him out because he was so pro-Israel and pro pro-Zionist. 
Uh, during World War II, he was responsible for running the Italians out of Ethiopia. And so there was a connection there to the uh, Ethiopians in his background. He came in from the West, which was not thought to be possible, and so therefore he, you know, he snuck in basically through the back door with a small number of troops, surprised the Italians, and ran them out of Ethiopia. Then he was sent by the British during World War II to India, where he developed a, uh, a group that went behind enemy lines, behind the Japanese lines in Burma, called the Chindits, and he was uh, killed. And when his uh, bomber carrying carrying himself and several Americans uh, flying over Burma was shot down by Japanese anti-aircraft fire in 1944. After the war, their remains were discovered. And since most of those who were in the plane were Americans and they had no way of uh, determining whose body was which, they brought all of them back to Arlington National Cemetery and uh, buried them in a mass grave in Arlington National Cemetery. Because of his devotion to Israel and because of his devotion to uh, the Zionists, he was given the title Hayadid, Hebrew word meaning the friend. Every year on the anniversary of his death, the Israeli ambassador to the United States goes out to his grave and has a ceremony where they recount his his great deeds for Israel and put flowers on his on his tomb. And that's a that's a great story. But there's an additional story related uh, to this this uh, kibbutz name for him. It is it is a youth village for troubled youth. They have a tremendous program there. Taking originally they they started off taking orphans that had survived the uh, Holocaust and had no no family, and eventually turned into a place where other orphans, troubled youth, delinquents, things like that would come, and they do a tremendous job turning them around. But during the Israeli War for Independence, um, this kibbutz, Yemen Ord, came under attack from the Arab forces and was completely surrounded, and they were without food. And there's an Israeli legend, according to the author of this uh, biography on um, uh, Ord Wingate uh, Fire in the Night by John Bierman and uh, Colin Smith, uh, they identify that as simply a legend that his widow, Lorna, uh, flew over the, uh, threw over the, flew over the kibbutz, kibbutz and dropped Wingate's personal Bible to the defenders. Instead, they write, contrary to this, to the popular, uh, Israeli legend, she was refused permission to make the flight for reasons of her own safety. Instead, she handed the Bible to a group of women who, with their children, had been evacuated from the settlement. She inscribed it on July 5th, 1948, to the defenders of Yemen Ord, since Ord Wingate is with you in spirit, though he cannot lead you in the flesh, I send you the Bible he carried in all his campaigns and from which he drew the inspiration of his victories. And may it be a covenant between you and him in triumph or defeat now and always. And that Bible is now preserved at another kibbutz, Ain Harad, which is near Harad Springs where Gideon called out the 300. And uh, there's still, we went there on our last trip to Israel. See, we do all kinds of other things and just look at Bible sites when we go over there. We went to the headquarters building at Ain Harad where uh, Wingate uh, ran his operation in training the special night fighters for the Haganah, the uh, 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 Israeli ar- army at that time. So there's a connection there with Ethiopia and with this, and there's a couple of big pictures of uh, Wingate and his widow coming with uh, ben- David Ben-Gurion, who was the prime minister of Israel in the early 50s, coming to um, uh, uh to begin this school that they started again uh, after the War for Independence. Now, this story of the Ethiopian Jews, we also went to another um, absorption center where, for the Ethiopian Jews, and this is a fascinating story. A lot of times you'll hear, ah, this is just legend. We don't really know the, the legend and how much is true, how much is not true. The legend is that... Uh, in Ethiopia, that the Queen of Sheba, who was from that area, and I have a map here so that we can look at the area I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking about. This is the uh, Sudan here. Egypt is to the north. 
the Red Sea here coming down to the Gulf of Aden. This is Ethiopia. And this area, Eritrea, and this area here is the traditional site of the uh, of Sheba, where the queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon. The legend is that she was pregnant with Solomon's child, went back to um, went back to Ethiopia with an entourage of, of Jews, and that the the uh, these Ethiopian Jews are the descendants of that entourage. There's also other historical truth in that there was a group of Jews that went to Egypt after the uh, destruction of the temple in 586 and various other groups that went down to that area. So we're not really sure uh, who their, their, uh, what the heritage is. They were called the Beit, Beit Israel, the House of Israel. Some think, and their, part of their legend is that they descend from the lost tribe of Dan, that after the destruction of the, of the northern kingdom in 722, that the, many in the tribe of Dan uh, migrated down to Ethiopia. Others believe that they are the descendants of Menelik I of uh, Ethiopia, who was the um, son of King Solomon and Queen of Sheba, and that was the belief that the king of Ethiopia, all the way down to Haile Selassie, who was uh, uh, deposed in a coup in the late 50s, claimed direct descent from the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. And so we don't know, we don't have historical verification of that, so it's uncertain. Uh, there's also the view that they are descendants of Ethiopia Christians and pagans who converted to Judaism uh, uh, almost 1,500 years ago, and also the view that they are descendants of Jews who fled from Israel after the destruction of the temple in 586, as I said, and, and went down that way. So, uh, But the view among the Jews in determining whether they were authentic really has quite a, a history. Uh, I was not aware of this because we just hear the story of the legend a little bit, but as early as the 16th century, as early as the 1500s, Egypt's chief rabbi, David bin Solomon ibn Avi Zimri, known as Radbaz, you know, they, those rabbis always had their little nicknames based on acronyms from their, from their name, declared that in halakhic, that is in Jewish legal sense, that the Beta Israel were indeed Jews. They have a they, they're known by the Jewish community as far back as the 4th or 5th century. And so by the 15th century, it, it's accepted in the Jewish community that they are indeed uh, Jewish. This position from Radbaz was reaffirmed in the uh, 19th century. Almost all leading Jewish authorities uh, accepted Beta Israel as true Jews in, as, in 1864, in 1908, the chief rabbis of 45 countries also affirmed that Beta Israel were true Jews. And then after World War II and after the uh, uh, coup that deposed Haile Selassie, they became increasingly persecuted by the socialist Marxist dictators that ruled uh, ruled Ethiopia, and so they were left impoverished. They were prohibited from observing any of their Jewish rituals. They were observed. They were prohibited from teaching Hebrew. They continued to teach Hebrew to their children from generation to generation. They observed all of the Mosaic law. They had no idea that the Jews had returned to Israel or to Jerusalem because they were so poor and they're located in a in this uh, area indicated here on the map near Lake uh, Tana in Ethiopia that this area is pretty remote and they had uh, they had no news no idea no no awareness of anything that was going on in the outside world and so this young woman who's probably in her early 30s that is speaking is telling her story, and I thought it was much more uh, one of the more compelling stories I heard. So I thought I would uh, play this for you. And uh, it is—I listened to the whole thing a couple of times today. I'm half deaf, so if I can understand it, and you got to work with the accent a little bit, you'll get used to it. And then uh, it's a, just a remarkable story. She is one of the directors of the uh, of the youth village there. In Ethiopia, they call us Falashin. Falashin, it's meaning you are not belong to here. 
and uh, we holding the dream that one day really we're back and um, to be Jewish in Ethiopia it was not easy at all and uh, I don't know why but one day I remember they changed the, the market day from Wednesday to Saturday this is the reason that they give us pusher, you know, to go from Ethiopia to come to Israel. It was in 1980. I was one year old, but from the stories I remember very strongly. And in uh, 1980, um, they start to go walk, and they don't know what Sudan. And 4,000 people die in this way. Many of them, they was young children, and. Um, they don't know uh, uh, Sudan, it's a desert country. It's uh, many pirates, how do you say pirates? Pirates. Pirates, yeah. They try to take the women or young ladies from their family. The father tried to protect them, they kill them. It was really terrible. Until today, my family, they are not speak what happened to them in, in, uh, in Sudan. And it was 1980 until 1984. In 1984, the government in Sudan, he understand Jewish people go out from his country, they are stopped this operation, and we was stopped in Ethiopia until 1991. And in 1991, the in U.S. Uh, people help us. The donation, 41 million dollar, with the government in Israel to pay and to take the last Jewish people from Ethiopia. It was the operation of Solomon. Yes. I was 11 years old. Grew up with amazing story. Always my parents said in Jerusalem the milk come from the land. Everything from girls. Nobody call you Falasha. Jerusalem it's like paradise. And we believe. And also in this time in Ethiopia we don't have any connection with other Jews in the world. They said we are the last tribes of Shevedan. Tribes done. And this is another reason to holding everything far away, you know. And um, when we fly, first of all, to fly to Israel, it was amazing, magic, you know. It's like, first of all, to see how it works, so huge, how people, they can fly. And uh, the children, we try to understand how it works, but short time after we understand, only God can fly these things. Because we don't see nobody, you know, like in the... <laughs> and, um, and then when we arriving in Israel, you know, try to, uh, to imagine that we live like in the Bible time. Very simple, farmer, the women, they make pottery. Uh, this was our life before we come to Israel. When we arriving in Israel, we was in shock. First of all, to see very modern country. You know, you're dreaming about Jerusalem, the meal. It's like paradise. You go there, you don't need to walk. You know, everything is ready, you know. And you come to here, it's something else. Still beautiful. And the second one, to see white people. We was in shock. Listen, there was nothing one color. There was different. There some of them with red hair, the gingy one. Blonde people, you know, it's like... What's going on? The, the next joke that we was really thinking that was joke, they said they are Jewish. Why Jewish, you know, in the world, you know? You know, it was possible, you know? Anyway, and these people also different language. And uh, from the, the children from 11 years old and up, we go to the boarding school. It's happened in Israel, everything happens very quickly. You don't have time, you know. It's like, now I understand what is the meaning accident, you know, that when we go out from the same, you know, it's crazy. It's happened very fast. And then uh, we go to the boarding school, we understand that we are really different. And our color has become issue. And the children, we hate that. And we try to be regular child, like, you know, Israeli child. So, you know what we did? You know, on the computer you have the delete. We just delete our culture. We work very hard to be Israeli. So we work hard 
to, uh, uh, to learning the language, we changed our style and everything. And then, a uh, few years after, uh, I ask, I all the time ask people how to be better. And one day somebody tell me, if I want to be part of the strong Israeli people, go only with the Ashkenazi people, you know? Ashkenazi is like really white one, you know? They are from Europe, Germany, you know? So I believe, I was young, I believe, and uh, my friend, all, all of them, they was from Ashkenazi people. Today, you know, it's not okay, but... And in that time, and you finish the high school, and when, the, when you finish the high school, the next thing is to go to the army. And in the army, I don't, nobody was in, a, in my family was in the army. So usually in Israeli society, they ask people, they have some connection. In my situation, nobody was there. So I asked a uh, father of my friend, what is the best place in the army? And he told me, Shayetet Shloshesre. It's Navy SEALs, the commando. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, with these things, I go to train one month, very hard. And then they tell me that I need to go to do some course four months to be like officer for the new soldier. And they said, no way, I go to the Shayetet Shloshesre. Anyway, I was stuck in this place three months. And every day I come to ask when I go to the Shayetet Shloshesre. And the commander. And he said, listen, you make me crazy, and I'm going to put you in jail. I don't care anymore, you know. And uh, I was very good to, you know, in Hebrew, blah, blah. And I tell him, listen, all my life, I'm dreaming about Israel. I want to give to the, my country the best serve, you know, blah. And he believed me. And uh, he gave me the opportunity to go to this uh, place. It was amazing. Really, 10 minutes from here, amazing people, very small, uh, unique um, place. And uh, this is the place that you feel in the army, this is the place you feel you are 100% you are Israeli. You are proud about yourself, about your country. And um, I served almost two, two, two years. Before I finished my army, I met some Faranji guy. Faranji is meaning white guy. He traveled six months in Ethiopia, and he know a lot about the Ethiopian Jewish community. And he come to my office, and he said, listen, girl, you need to proud about yourself because you are part of the Ethiopian Jewish community. And I said, okay, start again. I don't know how it's in the U.S., but in Israel. I guess that stopped at that point. She goes on to tell how she came to America and sort of all of these people tend to have the same sort of uh, story where they sort of have to figure out who they are ethnically because they've grown up in a mixed cultural background and they sort of have an identity crisis. And, and from people I know who have grown up in multicultural type situations like that, that's not uncommon. She served two years in, the, um, in what's equivalent to, to U.S. Navy SEALs. And then uh, she came over here. Yeah, she is, I mean, everything that she's done, she's excelled at. Uh, and then having finished her career, she came to the U.S., was a success in business for about five years living in, in Los Angeles, sort of, ident you know, sort of reached a, a um, conclusion as to who she was, her, solved her identity crisis, and went back to Israel to work and to direct this uh uh, youth village there in uh, at, at Yemen Ord, and just just remarkable. And one of the reasons I'm showing these things is to help us understand a little bit more about modern Israel and the role of Israel in the world, because the assault on Israel today is coming not only from uh, Islam and their historic anti-Semitism, but we're seeing a resurrection of. Uh, anti-Semitism in the Christian community and resurrection of some of the worst forms of replacement theology. So let's uh, open our Bibles again to Romans chapter 9 and just review where we've been in our study of Romans 9. And tonight we're going to look at the issue of hermeneutics and replacement theology, all part of our introduction to understanding Paul's focus on Israel 
and the Jew, Jewish people in Romans chapter 9. Uh, one quote I had here from the Baltimore Jewish Times of uh, November 9, 1979, about the Falashi said, Once they were kings, a half a million strong, they matched their faith with fervor and out, outmatched the Muslim and Christian tribesmen around them to rule the mountain highlands around Lake Tana. They called themselves Beta Israel, the House of Israel, and used the Torah to guide their prayers and memories of the heights of Jerusalem as they lived in their thatched huts in Ethiopia. But their neighbors called them Falashas, the alien ones, the invaders. And even 300 years of rule, even the black features that matched those of all the people around them, did not make the Jews of Ethiopia secure governors of their destiny in Africa. And that article was also significant because uh, at the time that that came out in the late 70s, there were movements to uh, begin the movement of these uh, Egyptian Jews, the Beta Israel to Israel, and the publication of that particular article by the Washington Jewish Week uh, caused sort of an uproar. It was it leaked, as it were. It was the leaking of information about the um, first attempt by the U.S. and Israel to uh, to bring them out of of uh, Ethiopia and bring them to Israel, and so it delayed that for uh, for some time. Okay, Romans nine one, as we saw last time in the first three verses, the Apostle Paul emphasizes his emotional attachment, concern, his love for the Jewish people, that he had, he was, went so far as to say that he wished he would, if he could, he would die, he would be accursed eternally, he would be lost if they could all be saved. Verse, uh, verse 2, I wish myself that I were anathema from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So there's nothing negative in Paul towards the Jewish people. He's not blaming them to be Christ killers. He's not uh, blaming them or saying that they're under the uh, judgment of God and the Christian should be hostile to them at all. But he shows his great love for the Jewish people. And in verse 4, he describes them as Israelites to whom pertain, and this is uh, in, in a tense that's emphasizing their present possession of the adoption from Exodus chapter 19. They're adopted as God's firstborn uh, child from the glory, the covenants, the covenants of Abraham, uh, the covenant of uh, the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, that these still pertain to Israel. They have not been abrogated. Uh, the giving of the law belongs to Israel. That not only involves a specific giving of the law, but the fact that God called out the descendants of Abraham to be the custodians of revelation, the custodians of the scripture, and pass, uh, preserving and passing on the scripture. The service of God, that relates to their service through the priesthood in the temple, and the promises, that these promises still hold true. They have not been set aside by God. And he says then in verse 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So he is fully Jewish in his humanity, who's overall and eternally blessed God. Amen. Another profound statement there, identifying Jesus as being fully God. We looked briefly last time uh, at uh, the foundation for the Abrahamic covenant, God's call of Abram in Genesis uh, 12, 1 through 3, where he promised that he would make Abram a great nation. He would bless Abram. That's a personal blessing. That's not a blessing. I'll bless you, you all. It's singular. I will bless you. God's promise to bless uh, Abram and make your name great that Abram's name would be great. And then he says, and you shall be a blessing, a command. And I went over various things last time about how uh, Israel has done numerous things in agriculture and technology and uh, in medicine, numerous other areas, advancing the field. One, one thing I didn't mention last time was something called Israel, Israel, I-S-R, and then it's capital A-I-D, 
And this is a team that the Israeli government has developed of doctors, a range of different specialists, doctors, uh, EMTs, uh, nurses, uh, and they have a, a whole array of emergency equipment that they fly into places like Haiti when they had the big earthquake three or four years ago, into Japan when they had their earthquake, into numerous places in the world when they had uh, also down in Indonesia when they had the uh, uh, tsunami a few years ago. When the earthquake occurred in Haiti, the uh, Israel was in Haiti within about uh, 48 hours. A couple of days before the U.S. was there, notice it's Haiti's just around the corner for us, but Israel's on site, solving problems, setting up triage, uh, treating people, having surgery, rescuing people, all of this on the spot again and again and again. So they're fulfilling that uh, responsibility of being a blessing to the world. And then the key promise here, verse 3, I will bless those, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Two different Hebrew words used there. I keep emphasizing the first one is a harsh curse, a harsh judgment word. And the second is a word that has the idea of just treating them with disrespect. So if you treat the Jews with disrespect, God is going to harshly judge you. That is one of the strongest verses uh, to understand the horrors and the dangers for any people or any nation to get into when they get involved with anti-Semitism. And that's what I pointed out last time, that there are two great plagues that have, or two ideas that have plagued Christianity. One is the idea of replacement theology, and the second is Christian anti-Semitism. As Christians, we have this horrible legacy from the middle of the second century where anti-Semitic ideas began to uh, uh, develop within Christianity, leading to some of the uh, most horrible things being said about the Jewish people and being done to the Jewish people, beginning by the 2nd or 3rd century and on down through the Middle Ages and up to the present, culminating in the worst expression of anti-Semitism ever, which was the Holocaust uh, uh, that was carried out by the Nazi government in Germany during uh, World War II. A lot of people don't realize this because uh, it hasn't been published, but recently we learned a study came out from the U.N. that had been going on for four or five years investigating all of the uh, concentration camps, all of the death camps, all of the ghettos. Remember, there's hundreds and hundreds of little cities, towns all throughout Eastern Europe that created two-block, three-block ghettos and forced hundreds of Jews into those ghettos as a form of a concentration camp. And so the question was how many ghettos, concentration camps, death camps were there under the under the uh, Third Reich. And this study that came out in January was that it wasn't 5,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000. It was 42,500. 42,500. That blew everybody's mind. Nobody understood that. Now, what these two horrible views have in common, and we must understand them because they are making a comeback today, is that they are built upon a fallacious view of interpretation, a view of interpretation that is not restricted to biblical studies. We must understand that in how you interpret something, whether it's a an email from a girlfriend or a boyfriend, whether it is a, a legal document, whether it's the United States Constitution, whether it is British law, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's a, a modern dramatist, whoever it is, how you interpret literature is always the same. It's always based on a literal, plain view of the language. Once you cut yourself off from that, then an author can't communicate to its subject. And it's always interesting that in in the modern or postmodern world of today, where you have these uh, philosophers write 
condemning the historic view of any kind of a, of a literal plane view of interpretation. They do it in a way where they expect you to interpret their words in a plain, literal manner. That's the only way you can understand what they're saying. And yet they condemn that. And we recognize that there are differences between uh, different kinds of literature, history, uh, poetry, uh, love, sonnets, drama, all have their nuances, but ultimately they're all... Uh, the interpretive framework is always based on a plain, literal uh, interpretation. Uh, plain, literal interpretation, as we'll see, does not deny the use of figures of speech. It doesn't deny the use of similes and metaphor. It doesn't deny the use of symbols. But those symbols and metaphors are used in a way that is commonly understand, understood to have something of a literal, specific, firm uh, m- uh, meaning. So we need to begin our study of replacement theology and anti-Semitism as a backdrop for studying Romans 9 to 11 by looking at the principles of interpretation. David L. Cooper was a missionary to the Jewish community. Uh, one of his, uh, one of his uh, young protégés and disciples is Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And through Arnold's ministry and that of others, David Cooper managed to put together a rather catchy definition of interpretation, which is very clear, that uh, he called the golden rule of interpretation. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, make no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its ordinary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicates clearly otherwise. Okay, that's a great definition. Now let me talk about it a minute. He starts off with the plain sense of Scripture. Plain sense of Scripture is just it's the language, the words, what they normally mean, looking the words up in a dictionary. You understand that in a dictionary sometimes a word may have five or six different meanings. They'll list them, one, two, three, four, and five. One is the most common meaning, two is the second most common meaning, three, the third most common meaning, etc., and then when you look at a word, you determine by the context what the meaning is. The meaning isn't based on what Webster's says. Same is true in Greek or Hebrew. The dictionary is simply the work of a lexicographer who has studied all of the uses of a word and has categorized the major nuances that are found for the meaning of that word in various uh, various pieces of literature. That's why when you look at a dictionary, an English dictionary, let's say, from the 18th century, the 1700s, words that are contained in that dictionary may have a different meaning from that same word today. Why? Because language changes with usage. Usage determines meaning, not the dictionary. Words don't have absolute meanings. Now, meanings are determined by context. So and when I teach word study to uh, people who want to get into advanced studies of the Scripture, the key thing is don't go to your lexicons and say, okay, what does BDB say or what does uh, BDAG say, Arnton Gingrich, or what does that say, but to look at all the uses and categorize them. That takes a lot of time. We shortcut a lot of times because of uh, the fact that we don't have time to always uh, look at every single use of a word, especially if it's a more common word. You take a word like pistis for faith. You take a word like amen for uh, faith in the Old Testament. This may be a word that's used 150, 200, 300, 400 times. It's, it, it takes a lot of time to go through and analyze each usage and the context of each usage in order to boil down your meanings. Fortunately, there are a lot of excellent uh, lexical tools that have done a lot of that kind of work for us. And the more you study, the more you come to understand those those different nuances. But you have to look at what that normal plain meaning is. That's the word that if I tell you something, you're going to understand it. If you're going to read your instructions to fill out your income tax form, you want to make sure you understand it in, in light of what the author said. That's another aspect to interpretation is that that in order for one person to communicate to another person, 
then the person that's being communicated to needs to understand the intent and the meaning of the one communicating. When you sit down and uh, fill out your income tax and you read the instructions, you need to make sure you do it the way they say to do it, not the way you would like to do it. They have a word for people who fill that out on the basis of how they would like what they would like it to mean. They call them tax evaders and criminals. Same thing happens when think back when you were 14, 15, 16 years old and you got a love note passed to you in school or a love tweet or email or whatever today. And your question is, well, what did they mean? What did he mean? What did she mean? What did they intend to say? You don't care what you read, what you think would like for it to mean. You want to know what they said. We know that intuitively until we get into about junior or senior English in high school, and all of a sudden the teacher starts trying to tell us that the way to understand poetry is what does it mean to you? But, of course, if you go to some Christian Sunday school classes, you're exposed to that much earlier. The Sunday school teacher who's lazy comes in and hasn't ever studied anything and says, well, read this verse and tell me what it means to you. And so we have a culture that's been brought up on this idea that the meaning of a text doesn't reside in the text, in the words of the text, or in the mind of the person who wrote the text, but in your mind. And we call that a subjective meaning because you're the subject and it's dependent upon you. There's not an objective meaning that is verifiable from the, from the author. So plain sense is, is just taking it at its face value. The plain sense makes common sense. If you read a passage of scripture and it says that Jesus wept, well, the plain sense of that is that Jesus cried. And so you don't want to try to read into it something else because it makes perfect sense. It's in the context of the death of Lazarus, and so it makes perfectly good sense. There's nothing contextually to make you think that this is really talking about some some other kind of activity. So what he's saying is that when the plain sense makes common sense, don't try to read something else into it. It's It's... It's simple. When when Paul says to the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, don't try to make Israel there mean the church. Don't try to read in other passages the word church and say, well, that must mean Israel. I have another. Tonight's really show and tell night. I brought all kinds of books with me tonight. A uh, new book that I'm working through is a two-volume work by Nahum Sokolov, uh, written in uh, 1960, uh, about 1920, I think, on the history of Zionism. And he's one of the few Zionist historians that I've read that actually starts with British restorationism, and in, his first chapter is called England and the Bible, because that's where it started. And he writes... In the early part of the 17th century, as they're shifting, they're just remembering the history of of, uh, coming out of the Reformation. One of the primary principles that Luther resurrected was literal interpretation. Now, he only applied it as far as justification by faith. He didn't, that was such a huge battle, he didn't have time to push it beyond in his system. So he still had a lot of, lot of non-literal interpretation in his theology. But in his view of salvation, much of it was based on a literal interpretation. Well, that was around 1517 when the Protestant Reformation began. Now we're up to about 1600. And over those 80 years or so, there's been a, a development of, of theology as theologians have, have uh, pushed out the, um, the application of literal interpretation to other areas of theology besides just uh, salvation. And so uh, Sokolov, Jewish author, writing about, um, writing about England, says uh, that the education of a large number of Englishmen has consisted mainly in the reading of the scriptures. 
And he says that the growth and gradual diffusion of religious and moral thinking is due to the supreme influence of the Bible is a fact which can be recognized throughout the whole of English history. As a single instance, we may take two writers who lived at different periods, one from the 1600s, one from the 1800s. So he says um, the first is the Reverend Paul Nell, K-N-E-L-L, 1615 to 1664, the height of the Puritan era and Matthew Arnold, 1822 to 1888. Nell, he says, now pay attention, Nell compared England with Israel. Now, what other culture besides England has compared their experience with the Israelites? The black community. That's not me. The black community, okay, they've identified their slavery in America with the slavery of, of, um, of the Jews in Egypt. But see, they made the same mistake because they idealize it and they use, used too much allegory. It wasn't literal. That was a problem that Sokoloff is pointing out that preceded Paul Nell. And he says, Nell compared England with Israel. The name Israel was used by writers of his age with so much laxity that it is impossible to define the sense which it was generally intended to convey. It often meant the religion of Israel. At other times it was used as if it were a synonym for the word church. But Nell used the word in its plain meaning. For him, Israel meant simply the people of Israel or the land of Israel. Literal interpretation. Israel means Israel. Israel doesn't mean the church. The church doesn't mean Israel. The term Israel is not a symbol for something. It's not code word for the church. The church is not, we don't have, the Israel is not the church of the Old Testament, and the church is not the Israel of the New Testament. But that's what a lot of, that's what a lot of people were doing up to Nell, and Nell is one of the few that began this shift with a literal interpretation. And most other denominations, most denominations, Lutherans, Roman Catholic, a lot of the Presbyterians did not do this, although those that were premillennial, which really came into its own at this time, were more literal in their interpretation of these passages related to Israel. Now, this, does, this idea of literal interpretation doesn't just apply to the Bible. It applies to any kind of literature. One of my fa- favorite quotes is from Clarence, Chief, uh, is from a Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas at the Riston Lecture to the Man, uh, Manhattan Institute. This was now, I, this, I took this from an article last Thursday. Actually, this was about seven years ago now. He said, let me put it this way. There are really only two ways to interpret the Constitution. You could substitute the Bible, and it would be just as true of a statement. Try to discern as best we can what the framers intended or make it up. See, that's how people are with the Bible. They either try to determine what the plain sense of Scripture is in light of what the author intended, or they're just making it up. And the trouble in a lot of churches and with a lot of theologians is they're just making it up. There's, once you get away from a literal interpretation, it can mean anything and there's no protection of truth anymore. Because what it means to you can be different than what it means to me. That's the same thing with the Constitution. You hear people talk about the Constitution as a living document. That means that it doesn't have to be interpreted anymore in terms of the intent of the original author. Well, tell me, when you get a love letter, when you get a letter from the IRS, especially today, if you're a conservative Christian, or if you get a, um, uh, a, uh, a tax notice in the bill, or you get a, a, a card, greeting card from somebody, how do you understand it? You understand it literally. You don't understand it in a figurative, allegorical manner. You don't say, well, what do I want this to mean? What's it going to mean today? Now, this may have meant something different yesterday, but what does it mean today? We don't do that in anything unless it comes to, 
to laws changing the Constitution. Isn't it interesting that we have a we have an administration today where the only um, uh, amendment from the Bill of Rights that they think has any value is the Fifth Amendment. They've trampled over the First Amendment. They want to destroy the Second Amendment. They don't care anything about the Fourth Amendment or the Tenth Amendment, but they, oh, wait a minute, we're going to claim the Fifth because we trampled all over all of the other ones. And that is not restricted to just Democrats, trust me. There have been a lot of people over the years that have trampled over both ends of the of the spectrum because they don't want to take it literally. See, we we elect people to defend the Constitution. They think we elected them to change the Constitution. We don't hire a pastor to change the Bible. But that's what that's what happened in the um, that's what happened in the late 19th century with the advent of 19th century liberal theology and it went back to the same kind of non-literal interpretation and what did that eventually produce it produced a pseudo utopianism that gave birth to a ba- to the bastard child of nazism there were a lot of other elements that figured into that but that's where the anti-Semitism came from. It had a long heritage in Western Europe, and it was all built on a non-literal interpretation of the Bible, and it bore its poisonous fruit in the Third Reich. Now, what does the word hermeneutics mean? It's the Greek, from the Greek word hermeneuo, which is based on the name of the Greek deity Hermes, who is the messenger or interpreter of the gods. And the word uh, basically meant to bring someone, means to bring someone to an understanding of something, to explain something, to make it clear, to make it intelligible. And so hermeneutics refers to the science and art of interpreting the Bible. It is both a science because it follows certain precise principles that must always be followed, and an art, because it takes time and skill uh, in order to develop it. This is uh, based on a quote from Milton Terry from an earlier generation in his uh, classic work, Biblical Hermeneutics. Terry is good as far as he goes, but he reached a point where he quit being literal. Like a lot of covenant theologians, once they get to prophecy... Unfulfilled prophecy is interpreted in a non-literal manner, although they interpret all of the prophecy that's been fulfilled in a literal manner. Jesus was going to be born, according to Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem. He's going to be born of the lineage of David. They take all of that literally, but as soon as it becomes unfulfilled prophecy, then it's no longer understood in a literal fashion. Milton Terry wrote in his classic textbook on biblical hermeneutics that hermeneutics is both a science and an art. As a science, it enunciates principles, investigates the laws of thought and language, and classifies its, that should be facts and not fats, just want to make sure if you're paying attention, classifies its facts and results as an art. It teaches what application these principles should have and establishes their soundness by showing their practical value in the elucidation of the more difficult scriptures. That's where, as you interpret scripture, it's not in isolation. It's got a surrounding context. That has a surrounding context, and that has a surrounding context. The passage we're looking at in Romans 9 has a context of Romans 9 to 11, which is in the context of the epistle to Romans, which is in part of the Pauline epistles, which is part of the New Testament, which is part of the Bible. So you don't just interpret in, in light of it's just the verse. You don't just take out your scalpel and cut out two or three verses and try to understand them in isolation. Not only do you have the literary context of the Scripture, but you also have its historical context, its cultural context, and all of those different aspects that are important. He concludes by saying, The hermeneutical art thus cultivates and establishes a valid exegetical procedure. Okay, now this is all spelled out in a lot of different Bible study methods. Now, Peter Lang, 
Lange, he's German, in his commentary on Revelation writes about the different types of hermeneutics, literal or figurative. He says the literalist, so-called, the reason we, we sort of, uh, qualify this is because our opponents say that we have just a wooden literalism, that we don't believe in figures of speech, we don't believe in metaphors or similes, we just have a very uh, rigid literalism. In other words, if I tell you to go jump in the lake, that doesn't mean that I'm telling you to literally go jump into a body of water. I just want you to go away or leave or quit bothering me or something like that. It's an idiom. It is, has a, a, it's a figurative way of speaking that has a literal meaning. And we know what it means. If I tell you to go jump in the lake, not one of you would go find a body of water and jump into it. See, we're, but we're, we're not, that would be wooden literalism. But that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we mean by literal interpretation. So he says the literalist is not one who denies that figurative language, that symbols, are used in prophecy, nor does he deny that great spiritual truths are set, foot, set forth therein. His position is simply that the prophecies are to be normally interpreted, that is, in according to the received laws of language, as any other utterances are interpreted, that which is manifestly, uh, manifestly figurative, being so regarded. There are some passages in Scripture that utilize a tremendous amount of figurative speech. I'll, let me read one to you, just a minute. Um, this comes from the Song of Solomon, one of my uh, favorite, favorite little, uh, favorite descriptions. Now think how you would picture this. I, I one time had an artist draw this literally, and I can't find it anywhere. Um, but think about this. In, picture this in a literal manner. The, this is um, Solomon speaking of his of the, the beauty of the Shunammite woman. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Are we going to take that literally, that she has literal dove's eyes? Now, it's a literal veil. But you see, we understand that in our language, that when it says you have dove's eyes, that he's it's a metaphor. He's comparing her eyes to the beauty of a dove's eyes. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. So there's a comparison there between, between her hair and a flock of goats. Now, is it comparing smell? Is it comparing, um, you know, what, what's it comparing? Is it comparing color? Is it comparing something that is flowing beautifully and gently down the slope? That's what it's comparing. It's, it's, it, that's the figure. But we, we know the language, so we pick up on that and, and we, un, we understand that. We're not, in, we're interpreting it literally, but not woodenly. Uh, your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep. Just imagine what that would look like if you took it literally. Okay, see, this idea that we don't believe in simile or metaphor idiom is just, it just, just, it, it, it's nonsense. It's, it's not what, what actually goes on. Now, Gordon Clark, who's a well-known, uh, philosopher, theologian, has gone to be with the Lord, and so he's now a dispensationalist, um, does make a very uh, intelligent comment here. He says, If God created man in his own rational image and endowed him with the power of speech, notice he's, he goes back to the creator concept that God initiated language and communication in his own being, and then he, he creates that in man as a finite replica of who God is. He endows man with the power of speech, then a purpose of language... In fact, the chief purpose of language would naturally be the revelation of truth to man and the prayers of man to God. That language was originally created so that God could communicate information to man and man could communicate back to God. That's the purpose of language, primarily. That doesn't mean there aren't other aspects to it, but that's the primary. He says, in a theistic philosophy... One ought not to say that all language has been devised in order to describe 
and discuss the finite objects of our sense experience. In other words, language isn't there so that we can talk about what we see in the created order. On the contrary, language was devised by God, that is, God created man rational for the purpose of theological expression. Now, I've always wondered, you know, I've known people, I even know some pastors, I won't mention them, who always seem to avoid discussing theology. And I always, I, I always thought, well, you know, the primary purpose, I, I discovered this quote back when I was in seminary. If the primary purpose for language is really the highest purpose for language is for us to talk about God, if you're with somebody who doesn't ever like to talk about God or talk about theology, then Houston, we got a problem. Now, Floyd Hamilton is a well-known antagonist to dispensationalists. He's a millennial covenant theologian, and he writes about uh, interpretation just to show you the other side. Uh, he says, now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. My, if we use literal interpretation, of course we're going to end up with what they think, but, but that's wrong. That was the kind of messianic kingdom that the Jews of the time of Christ were looking for, on the basis of a literal kingdom interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies, subtext, and they were wrong. See, that's what he's saying. Literal interpretation about future things is wrong. Another amillennialist, Vern Poitras, who wrote a really slanderous book against dispensationalists in the, back in the 90s, well-known theologian, teaches up at Westminster Theological Seminary, but he needed a fact checker who would tear out every other paragraph because it was just filled with all kinds of falsehoods about what dispensationalists believed. He wrote, I claim that there is a sound, solid, grammatical, historical ground for interpreting eschatological fulfillments of prophecy on a different basis than pre-eschatological fulfillments. Now, where do we find that in the Bible? We're going to interpret unfulfilled prophecy in a different way than we interpret fulfilled prophecy. That's what he's saying. It's therefore a move away from grammatical historical interpretation to insist that the house of Israel and the house of Judah of Jeremiah 31.31 must with dogmatic certainty be interpreted in the most prosaic biological sense, a sense that an Israelite might be likely to apply as a rule of thumb in a short-term prediction. In other words, he's saying... If the house of Judah and house of Israel just can't mean the house of Judah and the house of Israel, that's just too common. Common as pig tracks, as somebody would say. But no. You know, he's, he's shifting the rules of the game in mid-game. O.T. Alice, another well-known Westminster professor, covenant theologian, wrote numerous commentaries and attacks and slanders against dispensationalists back in the early 20th century, said, one of the most marked features of premillennialism in all its forms is the emphasis which it places on the literal interpretation of Scripture. It is the insistent claims of its advocates that only when interpreted literally is the Bible interpreted truly. Well, he's right. That's what we say. And they denounce us as spiritualizers or allegorizers, those who do not interpret the Bible with the same degree of literalness that they do. None have made this charge more pointedly than the dispensationalist. And then he says, the Old Testament prophecies, if literally interpreted, cannot be regarded as having been yet fulfilled or as being capable of fulfillment in this present age. What he goes on to say is, but they don't, if we don't interpret them literally because we're in the kingdom now. Okay, we'll stop there, and next time come back and see how a shift away from non-literal interpretation impacts how the church historically viewed Israel, and that that's the foundation for understanding this whole thing that now is called replacement theology and how replacement theology is rearing its ugly head today in a new form called uh, Christian Palestinianism. Christian Palestinianism, and this is, a, um, this is a counterpoint to Christian Zionism. And uh, when I was in Israel, 
I got to hear two advocates of Christian Palestinianism uh, address us. It was interesting to listen to them, as one of my colleagues said, and we were patient to the point of, of where we were almost ready to commit murder. <laughs> so one, one pastor sitting there did call them a liar to their face, but we won't mention any names. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word and to reflect upon your grace and faithfulness in the life of Israel and to see how your blessing on the Jewish people still manifests itself, even though the vast majority have turned their back and continue to reject the Messiah. But yet we know that there's a future plan, future purpose, and that the Jewish people are still your chosen people. They're still the apple of your eye. And the principle is still true that those who bless Israel will be blessed. And so, Father, we pray for Israel. We pray for the Jewish people. We pray for those who can clearly communicate the gospel to the Jewish people, that they might clearly understand the issues. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.